0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise. <laughs> en
2: 1887, a terrible séisme a englouti l'archipel de Goto. At present, une seule île est tout ce qui reste de ce royaume. Toutes relations ont cessé avec le reste du monde. L'île de Goto a été condamnée à l'oubli. Le gouverneur Goto III, comme les précédents gouverneurs de l'île de Goto, veille à ce que soient conservées les mœurs et traditions telles qu'elles existaient avant la mémorable catastrophe. Le gouverneur Goto III, Ligia Branis, Glossia, épouse du gouverneur dans Goto, l'île d'amour, avec Jean-Pierre Andréani, Ginette Leclerc, Guy Saint-Jean. Goto, l'île d'amour, un grand film de Valérian Borovczyk. René Thévenet et Louis Duchesne présent Pierre Brasseur, Ligia Branis dans Goto, l'île d'amour, le film des façons humaines.
1: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Miss Cat Ellinger. Hello. Also back in the booth after far too long is Mr. Daniel Bird. It's a pleasure to be back, Mike. Polish month continues, kind of, with a look at Valerian Go Gotu Island of Love. Released in that magical year of 1969, the film tells the tale of a thief on the island of Gotu, which is ruled over by Governor Gotu III. After being pitted in armed combat and somehow surviving, he is put in charge of the governor's dogs... Boots, and The Killing of Flies. Of course, we will be spoiling this film, so if you haven't seen go to. you have been warned. So, Daniel, I have to ask, when was the first time you saw this film, and what did you think?
0: I saw it in London at the ICA, so the Institute of Contemporary Arts, in the spring of 1997. I'd seen some of Borovic's shorts at my local film theatre in Stoke-on-Trent. This was in '94, and uh, I'd managed to see Blanche... Uh, the film he made after goto on on video cassette which was released by BFI so i had huge expectation about what goto should be and um yeah it lived up to them uh, i thought it was uh, i loved the atmosphere of the film the fact that it was like a whole total world and and i think that's that's what interested me about that particular film it was like a razor head by david lynch that the idea that the, you you are going into a world and that's what Goto kind of offered. I also remember that screening because I was worried about missing the last bus from London to Stoke-on-Trent, and I watched the whole film worried about, am I going to catch the bus? Am I going to catch the bus? And the film finished, and I I ran. I did catch the bus, but I was so tired, I fell asleep on the bus, and it went past Stoke to Chester. So yeah, my memories of Goto are actually mixed up with being stuck in Chester at 3 o'clock in the morning, trying to work out how to get Back to Stoke before nine o'clock. The so, perils so,
3: of living outside London.
0: <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah, that, 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 that was my commitment going all the way to London on the National Express was to see a shitty 60 millimeter print of gotto in the, the small ICA cinema, which if you don't know the small ICA cinema, I mean, um, an
1: iPhone has a bigger screen. Of course, you're saying it correctly by saying goto, but me having learned basic in seventh grade, I keep thinking goto, you know, 10, goto, 20, 20, print, hello. I'm sure Borovchik would have approved. Kat, what was your first experience with this one?
3: My first one is because of the camera obscura box set that Daniel produced, obviously, It's going to sound bad now, but I only knew the ruder Barovchek films before that box set. So it was a bit of an eye-opener to see the more... I don't want to say the more serious stuff, but the less sexual stuff. And I really fell in love with it, and Blanche as well. I think because of, like what Daniel said, it's this complete world... But it's also quite whimsical, and it's like a bit of a dark fairy tale. Same with Blanche as well. And it's got those same sort of doom romance themes in it as his later stuff. So I really fell in love with it. I didn't realise how dark it was, though, until watching it for this episode. During this pandemic, the whole totalitarian government and (laughs) post-disaster society, just so many things sort of time this time that I hadn't really picked up on. But I just think it's a wonderful film. It's like a really tactile experience, you know, because of all the little models and the little things. And, yeah, it just really surprised me when I first saw it. And and all of those shorts and everything, because that was the first time I'd seen any of those. Like, I'd seen Moral Tales and The Beast and... The saucier ones, obviously, but I'd never got around to seeing them. Wow, it's just because they're really hard to see anyway. So I'd never really got round to seeing the um, earlier stuff.
1: This was actually a first-time watch for me for this podcast. Um, I had gotten the Blu-ray slash DVD in the mail a few years ago, courtesy of Daniel, because I donated to, was it a Kickstarter or Indiegogo?
0: Uh, Kickstarter.
1: And I don't know if people know this, but if you donate to a Kickstarter that Daniel runs, he will come on your podcast. So it's just taken a few years <laughs> for that. But that was one of the perks. So I was just like, okay, yeah, and come on the podcast. And I agree, I love the world that this creates. Uh we've talked about Barovchek before on the show. Uh we actually we talked about Lamarge a few years ago. And The use of objects, that is one thing that always comes up when it comes to Barovchek, and just the idea of this world, this island community of Goto, that they have been cut off from the rest of the world since, what, 1887. And so things are being used not necessarily in the way that they're supposed to be used. The one scene that is so telling for me is when we are first exposed to the music of the island. And we have this guy who's got a singing saw. And then we've got another guy who has this weird contraption that is kind of a stringed instrument. And then we have these cellos right behind them. And it's like, what are you doing? Why aren't they? (laughs) Why aren't you using these cellos? And the cellos are just like backdrop to these guys who are just using these weird makeshift things. And that's so much of this movie is just these objects being used in different ways or different types of objects. The whole thing with the the two feet that spin around that hold the boots. You know, there are so many interesting objects. The flycatcher itself, it's so great to look at. And I love the look of this film, especially the use, or I should say the lack of shadows, that everything is so flat that this looks like almost an animated film, the way that it's shot.
0: That, of course, reflects Barofchik's background, because, of course, he... Trained as um, a painter and a sculptor, and then he worked as a as a printer that 's really how he kind of uh, made a name for himself. He got the national prize in Poland in nineteen fifty three uh, the year of stalin 's death uh, for a cycle of socialist realist uh, prints of Nowohuta, uh which is uh, an industrial town built uh, in the suburbs of Krakow. And then after that, he did film uh, posters for not very long, about a year, a couple of years, and then he sort of made this transition into film. Now, the fact is is that ever since he was a child, he was a keen amateur filmmaker on eight and sixteen millimeter. But he used this opportunity, together with another poster artist, Jan Lanica, to really kind of import the language of the Polish poster, which. Um, is quite remarkable because it kind of treats films, but uses techniques we associate with modern art, like collage or kind of expressionistic kind of styles and things like that. So suddenly these kind of Polish posters were moving with these incredible soundtracks. And, uh, I think it, it's, it's interesting. So that when Borowczyk started to make more and more live action films, first in short films in the 1960s and finally with a feature like Goto, he kind of approaches the the, the frame uh, in, in a particularly graphic way. Uh, the way in which he composes shots, of course, relates very much to how he kind of um, composed action for his animated films. And I think that you know it's it's that's that's where that comes from. I mean, it's very disorientating because he doesn't really everything is in kind of landscape and profile, and he's constantly cutting in these ninety degree angles. And I mean, it's a very simple but effective means of kind of cutting from shot to shot, scene to scene, just through this kind of like these knight's moves constantly.
3: I grew up like a huge fan of Terry Gilliam, especially Brazil and the Time Bandits. And it's weird then going back to Borovchek. And then just seeing how much he influenced Gilliam. So some, even though it's like really surreal and strange, some of it, I had some sort of frame of reference for it growing up loving Gilliam's films. And it definitely has that strange sort of fairy tale aspect to it. Like when we talked about Case of the Rookie Hangman. And you just get these strange fantasy societies with these weird little inventions and you just look at them and you just think, how the hell does someone come up with that Uh, just out of the air? It's really sublime. To go back to what Daniel was saying about the Polish posters, those posters are incredible, like the Polish always have like an amazing po- like even for some crappy sort of hollywood film you see the polish poster and you're like fucking hell like i tell you all that effort in some crap film they are incredible it's an interesting point though they're like art installations especially these earlier films and like moving art installations
0: but in a very unpretentious way, because yeah. if you say art, film or art, I mean, there is a certain baggage which comes with it, which, no, uh, I totally which agree. is not not there at all in those films.
3: This is somebody who works with their hands, you know, I don't mean art as in this very pretentious art way, just in, in a very pure I think that's what I I love about his films is they and we talked about this when we did Schiavisky the other week. It's the lack of pretension I think that I love the most. It's not like I'm going to make this thing and and be kind of show offy about it and make a statement. It's just an you just feel there's an absolute love there because of the detail that's gone into every little prop. Like that fly box is incredible with the little hairs. He made a number of short films, which, uh,
0: it's useful either to watch the short films first, uh, before watching Goto or watching them afterwards. Because I interviewed for, for the, the camera obscura box, which, which Kat mentioned, a photographer who was very influenced by Borowczyk when he was a student at, uh, St. Martin's in London called Craigie Horsfield. And he put forward the idea, he said that a handful of short films, uh and goto and, and 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 the theater of mr and mrs cabal which is an animate as a partially animated feature but after it made before goto uh he, he he said it constituted a coherent text by that he meant it was almost like a suite and that they all kind of culminate in uh in goto and i think that's very true because you, you can see little etudes little studies a lot of these short films and they all they all sort of like fit together and, and, mm-hmm. and, and blossom uh, in into Goto. All of them, I would say, like um, Goto was on Borowczyk's mind for a good 10 years. Kind of the earliest synopsis I've seen is written in Polish in 1958, when he was still in Poland. And uh, that year he made a short called uh, The School, Szkoła, which um, it's like the, all, the, all the visual iconography of Goto is there in that short film. It, it's about a... A soldier, which is going through some sort of military drill uh, or training in an Im- in infinite variations, constantly in a circular loop. And so it's like time doesn't exist. He's just kind of doing these kind of endless, 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 pointless, absurd kind of exercises. And uh, so you have that that kind of t- out of time, that repetition, and, and no real action and no real consequence. That that kind of absurdist. Amgun's is there in, in in the school. Visually, it takes place against a kind of a brick wall, and that that kind of drab, crumbling brickwork is very prominent in the kind of the look and art direction of Goto. And also this this contrast between this kind of military, almost dictator-like uh, mode of existence with kind of inner fantasy, or you know, or, or, or kind of sexual desire, because in, in the case of the school. Uh, the the soldier falls asleep and has a dream of a, the dancing girl's legs, uh, and there's a fly in that uh, in that short as well, which kind of uh, when he's trying to aim his gun, the fly lands on, on the barrel. So it's like everything was there and it was on his head, and then, and then he made a film with Jan Lenica and other poster artist, called Dom or the House, which is a meditation on on kind of movement itself so the idea of you know early it uses a lot of that kind of uh, chronophotography that that kind of like early studies and movement you know, which we associate with um uh Moybridge, but in this case it's uh, etienne jules marais then what he did and he's quite explicit about this in some of his notes he wanted to expand on the the ideas and techniques in the episodes in dom so and one of them is renaissance which is a it's still life a table with some objects and the film begins with an explosion and then the objects reconstruct themselves uh, the film is in black and white except for one shot of color at the end with the explosion and of course because it, it ends with an explosion and starts with an explosion it sort of loans itself to a kind of a constant loop Well you could easily imagine that you could project Renaissance in a kind of a loop in a gallery space and he did another film in called Diptych in in, in 67 which was a, a short documentary with a kind of a color in black and white with direct sound and it has this kind of counterpart film which is uh, in color with a uh, recorded sound with music and, and it's almost like the two films are kind of completely opposite but because they're made in counterpoint to one another they form a whole and it's like applying the Adeptic in in art in painting, like a, two, a painting in two halves with the relationship. Applying that to cinema, so you can easily imagine that. I mean, perhaps perhaps these days you would see that in a, in a in a in a in a gallery with like two screens, you know, opposing each other. But I think in the way in which he conceives these films, there's there's no sort of like um price of admission, let's say, whereby you have to bring a, a master's degree in art history before you can appreciate it. You can appreciate a lot of these short films. You know, it's, it's like I did. You know, they're like funny animations on TV late at night, yeah. or you or you can pontificate at great length about the symbols and uh, and everything else of this, which is perfectly fine too. But at the end of the day, I, I think what's remarkable about, about Barofsky's early films and these short films is that they work on both levels. You you could uh, write a whole book on one of the shorts, or you could uh, show them to, I don't know, a six-year-old kid, and they'll still be entertained.
3: That was the great thing about having the box set with everything in order. When I got it, that's what I did. I just started at the beginning, worked my way through. And it really helps you understand how he progresses. And like you said, how he repeats things later on these experiments it's like you can see how he's developing and testing and so I think the that box set is just one of the most amazing things I think I've ever written about I got it to review I didn't get the actual box set because I couldn't afford it at the time and then it sold out and I was really gutted about that you often don't get that in home video box sets just this whole idea that it presents a vision it's incredible work daniel because it's just so valuable i think you can just sit there and go from the beginning to the end
0: well i mean a lot of it i mean it, i have, you have to credit uh, michael Brook, who was i was the co-producer on, on this there was james white who um uh was the the head of restoration at arrow and he was actually and uh and then um Francesco Simeone who who, who okayed the project because originally a- actually how the box set started is is not unlike how Grozo progresses uh <laughs> in Coach Island of Love because originally Arrow asked me to interview Terry Gilliam for the time Bandits, which I did and and then at the end of the interview, I asked him about Borovciik because I knew he he'd mentioned Borovchik in an interview, and then I took that footage. <laughs> Uh, and anyway, sort of, and, and basically, and then because Michael Brook and James White, when they were at the BFI, they'd already planned and they wanted to to, to release a, a a set of short films by Borovchik because they'd worked together on these Jan Schwankmeyer set, which was fantastic, and then the Brothers Quay. Um, but it's always been complicated with the rights uh, to those early films, and on top of that, Birovchik's, um reputation based on his later films, particularly at that time. And, and I think the BFI changed focus, and both Michael and James went to Arrow. So it, all the bits came together. Uh, and, then, and then Arrow said, well, actually, we want to relaunch our Arrow Academy line to to kind of um, keep up with, you know, the great work of Criterion and Masters of Cinema. So I think they were looking for a project which was a bit left to field, something which Instead of saying this is a classic art film, it's let's treat this as a classic art film, and I think it was, you know, it was a bold move to take these titles and put it in the Arrow Academy range rather than the Arrow Video range because you can imagine The Beast and the Moral Tales in the yeah, Arrow Video it, range,
3: it but was to actually then to because
0: say that it's in the Academy is it's is like a statement. So it was all it all it all worked out.
3: And Gideon supported the Kickstarter, didn't he?
0: The interview for the Kickstarter campaign was the, was actually the end of the interview I did for Time Burnets. And I, and I actually asked him, said, look, would it be possible to, to use this as part of the campaign? Because there was a big court case uh, where Borovchik was reclaiming the rights to his films, uh, in particular Blanche. Uh, and so by the end of his life, he'd actually got the rights to, the short films about nine short films and then two features, the theatre Mr. and Mrs. Cabell and Blanche, but he didn't have any materials and uh, and by that I mean you know copies from which you could release on video and the copies kind of in the u k uh, were all falling apart so it, it it just coincided that that arrow were were, were making a name for themselves by uh, making. New masters uh, of of film, particularly films which, uh, let's say, uh, were not necessarily famous cult films, and so there was the, the agreement was between Ligia Borowczyk and, and, and Arrow to to restore Blanche, Mister and Mrs Cabal, and the Nine Shorts, and then uh, then they had the idea, well, let's let's do uh, the other three features which uh, belong to Argos Films, which is Goto, Island of Love, and Moral Tales and the Beast. And so that's how that box set arrived. And uh, it was a big risk for Arrow because, you know, Barovczyk had an unproven proven reputation. I mean, would people buy these uh, releases? I mean, obviously they would buy The Beast and the Moral Tales, but would they buy the earlier films? I I was very keen, and it was almost a a condition that the emphasis should be on the earlier films, particularly Goto, also Blanche, but and the shorts, um, because those were the films to reclaim and rediscover. And and Ara went along with that. And then when we, we did the retrospective, we, we focused on Goto.
3: That was why I, because I was saving up to get it, and I couldn't believe how quickly it sold out. I, I was literally two weeks off having the, and I was just like, whoa. Because, I mean, the campaign was really good. And obviously, a lot of people were like blind buying it. Uh, But when it was announced, I was just like, I can't believe they're doing this. And then I thought, oh, I'll have a few weeks to, you know, get the money together. And it just went, which is a great thing, I guess, because then it gave Arrow the confidence to take more risks with other things.
4: Yeah, I I mean, I agree.
0: I think that it's, uh, I mean, I'm extremely grateful. for uh, for Terry Gilliam to 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 allow uh, allow us to actually use that fragment uh, uh, as as part of the campaign because it kind of established uh, a narrative of of Terry Gilliam's endorsement of Buravich, which was really important because it helps with the media aspect of the campaign and, and that's something which can't be ignored. I mean, the more people know about it, the more they can contribute. Uh, I think it did. Uh, I don't know how Terry Gilliam feels about this, but it did it did kind of establish a story whereby uh, everything which Terry Gilliam got for the Monty Python animations came from Brofczyk, which is which is not really true uh, in the way that yeah. uh, I think that a lot of people, a lot of filmmakers, suddenly realized the possibilities of making films using cutouts in a particular fashion. Brofczyk was there early, so was Jan Lianitsa. And, and then there were people like Larry Jordan in the U.S. And Gilliam so it was, uh, but at the same time, it, it really helped the campaign to actually have Gilliam's name and to, to have people framing the film in the context of yeah. Terry Gilliam's films and, and Monty Python. And I think that, that those were really good associations to have. And uh, so, uh, yeah, it was very lucky and, 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 and had a lot of uh, attention, which it came as a big surprise to me, at least.
3: And I agree, I don't think he was completely influenced by Barofchek but you can see you know there's some influence there but it does give you coming into it blind it gives you that frame of reference if you've grown up on Monty Python if you've grown up on things like the Time Bandits you can then watch a film like Goto and you don't feel completely flailing around in the dark you can get into it on that level like you said, this sort of crazy animation, this this strange sort of fantasy vibe. You don't have to be approaching it from up high, like some filmmakers. Like you said, you have to understand all this stuff about art, and it can just feel too intimidating. And I think that Gilliam reference was, you know, the thing because so many people, especially in the UK. Especially people like my age, who grew up on things like the time Bandits, were suddenly interested in a film like Goto. Can you imagine if they didn't have that reference? how much it would you know some strange french Polish film that you know, um that that's on an art label i don't think it would have had the same resonance
0: not not at all uh, I, The one thing I do regret is that before it was about six months. Maybe even earlier, maybe a year before the the, the camera obscura box that came out, uh, there was a, a a theatrical re-release of Time Bandits, and there's a short film by Borowczyk called uh, Gavotte, which which of course has a bearing on Goto because the um the idea of the short film is that um as the title implies, it, it's based on a piece of music, and the kind of the emotion of the music. And the uh, the length of the music uh, serves as kind of parameters for this little drama. It is conceptual, and it sounds terribly dry, but it's not it's not dry at all because the film is really about a recital of a piece of music in high society. But Borocic, Tom and Jerry style, uses the camera frame to focus on two two dwarves, and he kind of frames it as such, whereby you can't see. The the people uh, who were, uh, who were kind of like they're all at waist height like in a Tom and Jerry cartoon and they're having a fight during this music <laughs> and then they're, 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 and it's hilarious and and but at the same time it would have been perfect as a short to go with Time Bandits and I think that's what's interesting about the two filmmakers because I think visually Gilliam is very very different from Barofsky because. Gilliam is very, very baroque and, and, and like Orson Welles with his wide angle lenses and, you know, everything's in the frame. Absolutely everything in terms of the costumes. There's more is more, you know, everything's in the frame and the camera movement. Whereas Borofchik, in fact, is the opposite, the absolute opposite. He talked about this in an interview, um, around the time of the beast. And he said that he looks through the viewfinder and he eliminates. And and I think if you look at the film, I mean, we always talk about him using kind of long lenses to give a very flattened out image. Um, but another consequence of using those kind of long focal lengths is that if you're filming, for example, a table, if you, the wider the lens, you get the whole table, bits of the room and the windows. Whereas if you're using a long lens, you just end up with a few things in the frame. And then, if you look through the frame, and then decide what is the absolute minimum I need to make this function as a shot, and if there's anything which is kind of uh, superfluous, he'll get rid of it. So he's kind of like building, composing shots, almost like isotypes. You know, like when you, you go to a toilet and they kind of reduce um, man and woman to this almost like a a diagram suggesting something, almost like a symbol. And uh, and he does that with his graphics. You know, what is the absolute minimum I need to make this shot work? What's the absolute minimum I need to make this film work? So he is a master. I think at his best, he, he is like super economic. If he doesn't have to use color, he won't. Uh If he doesn't have to use uh, people, he won't use people like in Renaissance or something like that. And uh, and that I think is very different from Gilliam, but at the same time, a film like Time Bandits and Gavotte—they both have dwarves, they're both funny, and and I think there is a, a continuity. And why not? You know, it's that humour, that mentality—that's what they share. The fact that they're both fine artists who are working, who just happen to be working in film, and they both have a particular a humorous way of looking at the world in all of its horrors. And and that's another thing I think Gilliam and Borowczyk share, the fact that um, what is funny one moment is horrific the next, and they don't offer signposts as to the tonal shifts. And, uh, I mean, that's particularly the case in something like Brazil, when the end of Brazil it gets quite frightening. Or in the case of Dr. Jekyll by Borowczyk, when, um, the, you know, you don't know if it's the funniest film you've ever seen or the most horrific film you've ever seen. I think there are continuities.
3: Can we talk about the humour in GoTo? Because I said it's weirdly dark, but it is also, I think that's one of the things I love about Borovchek. I always get this sense sometimes that he's sticking a finger up at these very bourgeois, pretentious sort of ideas, and you find this humour in there anarchic humour and there's a lot of it in Go To I said it's like quite a dark film but there's also some really funny parts to it because of the absurdity and it's also very sensual as well you get the little peekaboo looking in on women and their bottoms and stuff and it's all a bit cheeky So it never gets too dark to be this thesis on, you know, like this very dark. We were talking about the fifth horseman's fear recently, which is great, but it's just very dark, very stern, and within something like Go To. I think that's why my memory of it was that it was far more whimsical. That was the emotion I took away from it, and then watching it back this time, I thought, actually, there's some really dark things in this that were just standing out more, I think, because of the current climate. It's difficult
0: to describe and characterise the tone of of, of Gato. Um, for me personally, I'm not sure if it's whimsical, but at the same time, it does have this kind of um, fantastic, fanciful atmosphere in, t- and, and in terms of the way it's kind of presenting this world. Uh, but it's a very melancholic film.
3: That was my takeaway from watching it. When did that box set come out? A few years ago. That was the emotion that I remembered from it. And then watching back, I thought, this isn't actually that whimsical. <laughs> Although it is still parts of it are funny as well. It is a strange one. It's um like it shifts all over the place. And it is very sad, like Blanche as well. But I think that's what I love about those two films.
0: One thing which doesn't really get pointed out enough about Borowczyk is that I mean, everyone always talks about him being an erotic filmmaker and he always used to say, you know, I'm not an erotic filmmaker because the whole business of an erotic film is to, to, to titillate. And, you know, yes, I'm these films, some of these films are sexually explicit, the famous ones, but the other ones aren't. But if there is one thread, which I think you could trace through all of his works with one or two notable exceptions, is that he is, a, he is a, a comic filmmaker. Uh, most of the short films are engineered around getting some gags in, not unlike silent films, which, of course, has a bearing on the tone, humour, and look of Goto. Uh, so, I mean, he is a comic filmmaker. I mean, The Beast is... It's a farce. Dutch Jekyll, it, it's, I don't know, a, a Sadian farce? Is that a new genre? Yeah, uh, no, it's
2: you a know,
0: total farce. But Assad is kind of funny as well in its own horrific way. And so these are all... Well, but in the case of like probably my favorite of the, the shorts is one called Angels Games. And that, that's definitely not funny. It's a film which goes out of its way to say that it's not about the concentration camps. But although there's nothing in the film to make that explicit, the fact that the film at the beginning says this, this film should not be confused with anything that happened. It, it clearly is about the kind of the, the camp experience. And there isn't much humor in that situation. Uh, and Goto is is you know there are funny moments in terms of the characterization i think the way in which like all of these are kind of old kind of uh military type people that they're kind of they're, he casts to type so these people look like the characters they play and then he sort of accentuates the these characteristics through costume so all of these kind of people who are like kind of like uh bald and these tiny kind of glasses like kind of professors or the guy with the kind of the earpiece because he's deaf that's his humor i think and it's it's um it's you know it's almost pantomime like
3: well fighting over fly catching and stuff all the stuff with the flies i find really funny just the fact that somebody would be that into catching flies and it becomes this just this really i just find it funny i find dr jackal I mean, me and Sam just did an episode on Dr. Jekyll, which hopefully is going to air soon, and we were just laughing about that film. I was <laughs> just, you know, laughing about the absurdity of the, the situations. I think that's one of his greatest strengths. I think in terms of the sexuality, it's a very innocent sense of sexuality that's also funny. Like some of the shots in Goto, like the women in the brothel, and spying in binoculars were almost like those images you get on the saucy postcards. There's there's this sense of innocence about them, and and even in his later stuff, actually, even in stuff like The Beast, the it's not entirely serious. It's not like you said. It's not a, erotic in the sense that you know. Then he's making a film to commercially titillate people. It's just all part of this same thing, which is humorous and it's very warm. And I think that's how... like, He's an incredibly accessible filmmaker because of that.
0: Well, about the... You mentioned the brothel scene. I mean, this is something which is always... Yeah, it's always made me think, I mean, what exactly is, what exactly are we looking at? I mean, are women on the island of Goto nationalized?
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: is, it, is it sort of like, you know, because it, it does, it doesn't feel like a private establishment. It feels like some <laughs> sort of state, state run brothel, which I've always treated it as like a combination of both Borofchik's fantasy, but also almost a satire of, uh, aspects of communist life you know the idea i think what how could you take nationalization to the most absurd possible yeah. level and so you actually have like you know when we nationalize women and uh sewing so and then of course the actual makeup i mean it does look incredible that, that 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 kind of long shot when you've got just all those iron baths and those kind of uh uh contraptions allowing the water to go in i mean it, it does look fantastic Everything in that work, there, there is this whole nostalgic element of Borovchik and, and the, uh, which everything, all the kind of the visual iconography seems to be drawn or tend to the kind of the, the end of the, the 19th century. Uh, so you have this, I mean, someone, someone described it, I think at some point said, is the, is the ultimate hipster director. And I thought, God, what the do you mean that? And what they meant was the fact that he was really into kind of vintage stuff. That's what they meant. And it's true, it's sort of like, here's somebody who doesn't want anything mass-produced, who just wants vintage things. Someone who literally uh, does art direction himself by rooting through a thrift store. Someone who literally does his costumes by taking uh, Pete Bolcher, who's his costume person, uh, to a flea market, and then just like a collage, grabbing this and that and adapting things.
3: Well, his obsession with lace and corsets, because I... a massacre for costumes especially period costumes and obviously that's a theme that. but so many fucking corsets and lace especially in that brothel scene I just absolutely love all that stuff and the way he frames it as well so it does become sensual and erotic in that way I guess if you're like me and you're into that sort of thing
0: it's like sensual in the true meaning of the word whereby it's appealing to the senses so it's not just kind of like What's like in peeping tom, scopophilia, or whatever you know? When they talk about this, it's like it's like everything. The idea that you, the the attention to the sounds, the attention to the texture of surfaces, the attention to to things like the color itself, and I think that's something which is very important in in Goto, whereby the film is black and white and color, but the way in which he uses color, it's very different from say Tarkovsky. Uh, or, or Lindsay Anderson and If. He just uses uh, colour as like a, a punctuation or underlining something by shifting to colour just for a close-up of like the Glossier's Blue Shoes or the, the Meat of the Dogs or uh, the Blood in the Buckets and you're thinking well you know this is the that that immediate shock of color it, it's something you you don't have time to think about because the shots are so short so they work primarily on like a essential level and uh, you know just like almost like a it's, it's like a William Castle effect it's like, it's like shot cor- corridor with the, the you know the color sequence and that and it, it's just like a device to um uh, which works on the senses
1: i love the way that the storytelling is actually Completed just the whole idea of the schoolroom that we have at the beginning, and they have the whole thing. I, I love whenever we talk about perspectives; they've got that photo or that that artwork that is the three go-to's that are all in one. But he, the teacher, is asking the different sides of the classroom what they're looking at, and I like that. They see something that we don't, at least at first. And that when they are saying, I see go to one, I see go to two, I see go to three. And it's just like, well, what are you talking about? And then finally he moves the, the professor moves the picture around and we get to see that it is one picture with three people in it. And of course, this being Easter, I'm thinking of, of the, uh, the Trinity, you know, and just like, are these just the same person, basically just three different aspects of, leadership or the governance of the island i just that whole idea of the classroom and all of the things that are in the classroom we keep talking about all of the objects and the wonderful image of the fly life cycle that is up on the board and that he's teaching the children about flies. And then it's also a nice way to bring us into the story too, and give us this whole idea of go to being an Island that has been cut off since 1887. And I have to, I was trying to find out, was there some sort of significance to January 12th, 1887? Was that something special in history? But I was unable to, find out anything in particular where i was like oh okay there was something that happened on that date
3: it's genius how he gets because he introduces us to this completely fantasy world and in that single scene using the the prop of the the three emperors or governors the goto guys he he just gives us all this exposition in a couple of minutes that we now suddenly understand how everything is set up on that island. And it goes back to what Daniel was saying about economy. It's it's genius when you look at... Because often when you're trying to do fantasy... And I've been trying to write a fantasy novel, and it's so difficult not to overload people with exposition. But you, at the same time, you're trying to present something that's not like our world. So it's like, how do you do that? And the way he does that visually... And drawing us in with the, with the school children so that the school children tell us this history. You know, you don't feel weighted down with all this kind of history of the island. It's just, just done so quickly and so beautifully in a way that you engage with it as well. Cause like you said, Mike, you can't see the other gotos, uh initially. I just think it's just fucking amazing storytelling.
0: There's so much in that scene. I mean, I mean, you you could think that usually, you know, another filmmaker may just turn that into like a, a credit role at the beginning, of just yeah. in the context. But there's so many visual things which you, you make inferences from. It's like the, the teacher with the kind of the greasy hair and the stubble and the glasses. It's conjuring up the, the, so many associations, that kind of... Uh, Eastern European, kind of Polish pre-war Habsburg, you know, that that kind of period, sort of like a pre-war sort of, is it the early 20th century or the late 19th century? Is it an Eastern European country? Is, is, it, is it kind of like a, more of a German country? Or is it, you know, what, what is this? It's not clear, but there are little things which suggest it. And then you look at the, all, the, all the school children and, and they're all wearing the same militaristic costumes and you automatically start thinking of kind of military dictatorships or, or sort of like kind of communist uniform aspects. And then this whole, this this trinity, which of course does have this religious connotations. But then that aspect is also in, in kind of Soviet life, you know, the cult of personality of Stalin, the way that basically you have a an ideology which has no space for religious thought. At the same time, you know, the kind of the tyrants are kind of exalted and treated with exactly the same kind of structure as as, as a religion. And, and so it's almost like, you know, a commentary on that aspect of, of kind of uh, communist or particularly Stalinist life. The fact that um, last year uh, I, I was in Armenia uh, working on a, an installation featuring Parajanos outtakes, and we were in this incredible cinema, which was made in the 70s in this kind of brutalist, futuristic fashion. Mm-hmm. But we were using the foyer, and the foyer had stained glass windows which and, and steps in this kind of scale, which were clearly either inspired or drawing or associating with the church. And so you have this strange mixture where we're, we're in a what was a communist country with communist architecture, but at the same time it looks like a, a religious church. And so I think that there's that, that early scenes of the way that, yes, the, the, this isn't a religious community in the normal sense, but you have this, you still have funerals. You have these weird rituals. So there's, there's kind of uh, executions, and then you have this kind of military leader. It's drab and run down. The way that people are, are not clean shaven and everything's a bit tatty and a bit worn. You're not sure when it happened. Is it? You know, what, what time are we in? I mean, Barofsky makes it clear that it, it's a story of the present. So you know, it's. Uh, I, I think it's an incredible scene. And also you don't see any establishing shots. There's no, the establishing shots that there is in Blanche when the title sequence, you've got the castle and that's, that's kind of intercut with the dove and, and, and Blanche herself. But in the case of Goto, there's not one establishing shot. We do not see the exterior, uh, of the building. And that, I think that's really interesting from an hesitating point of view. The fact that Borowchik, like a lot of Czech filmmakers, which, which counts covered, Uh, an awful lot of is though, it's like, guys, we don't need the establishing shot. This isn't a Hollywood movie. We can just junk the establishing shot and then we can create a space using these different locations and it can, we, it doesn't have to necessarily be a space which makes sense. Uh, and that's something which you very much get a feeling of at the end of the film, the way that when he's dragging the, what appears to be the lifeless body of, of, of Glossier, through an endless procession of kind of trapdoors and of things like this. And you're thinking, what is, what is, how big is this kind of fortress? You know, how many floors does it have? And you realize it doesn't matter. That's part of the fun of the film that you, and it's the same with the Dutch Jackal film. You, 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 you kind of create this kind of, um, Piranesi dungeon of, of kind of stairs and tunnels and shoots and you use editing to kind of create this kind of nonsensical mess. And, uh, and, you know, and, and because you don't know what the castle looks like from the outside, your brain is constantly adjusting and, and, you know, wh- whatever's in your brain is far more impressive than probably what you could do with a model shot or a, these days a CGI effect.
3: It reminds me of those people who would desperately try and work out the Overlook Hotel in The Shining. You know, they're like, it doesn't make sense. And (laughs) it's the same thing with The Shining in that you have this hotel that we get to see what it looks like from the outside, but on the inside, you're just in this whole labyrinth, which is part of the effect. You get lost in it, but you have these people that are just so hung up on logic and things having to make sense that it drives them crazy. And I love that. (laughs) I just, it's like, let it go. Just the whole idea is, I think with this film, you're put into this space, but instinctively you start to understand it very early on. You don't need to, like Daniel said, you don't need to have the establishment. Like if it was a Hollywood film, you would get the, you know, in a land far, far away in 1887, so like you'd get this whole thing and then you'd get like shots of the island and, you know, you really don't need that because it's such a, like I said, a tactile film and and a film that's very sensual you feel it. You don't need to to know any of those other things. You don't need to know them. You understand this world perfectly from that very first scene in, you know, the just a schoolroom looking at this picture and talking about flies. It's so utterly genius. But if you imagine that in a pitch meeting, <laughs> like for a more conventional thing, well, what happens? Well, you know. They talk about these fries and they talk, you know, it would seem absolutely nonsensical to, you know, if you start to try and put it in any logical space. I think
0: that's one of the, I won't say problems, but, it, but it's, it's, it's a problem Borovchik had because, I mean, I've got the script for Blanche, uh, the film he made afterwards. And then there's, of course, you can read through the script and you can, and, and, and the film follows the script pretty perfectly but there's no there's nothing in the script to give the suggestion of how he's going to construct this visually uh there's nothing to suggest you know that how he's going to cut to these close-ups and things like that and the the way he frames and hones in on details so i think that yeah i mean that that is a it's an issue which i think um would would be a problem for borov later on in his career when uh, some of his scripts were either given more scrutiny or the people giving the money just didn't know what he did. If you look at like one of the earlier shorts, which I think is, it's one of the, one of the best ones it's, it's called Rosalie. And that's it's one of film. my
3: favorites. I love that.
0: It's, it's incredible. And I think that that's a really good short film to kind of get to grips with how Barovczyk tells stories and uses objects to tell stories because it's based on a, a, a Maupassant story about um, a kind of a housemaid, which uh, the master of the house gets a pregnant and she gives birth to, to two children uh, secretly, panics and then smothers them and buries them outside. And uh, the and it sounds absolutely horrific. I mean, of course it is horrific, but what does Borovchik do? He, he kind of presents the film as a confessional. And so you have this, this panelled background with with Ligia staring directly into the camera. In many ways, she's composed the same way in Goto, and she tells the story. And then basically, Barofsky cuts to objects which are kind of laid out as pieces of evidence. And and of course, you 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 are being presented with these objects, but because of the narrative, you are imagining how those objects feature mm. in the story which is happening off screen. So when you see a spade. Of course, all you see in the film is a spade with some soil on and a, and a, and a kind of a, a label identifying it as evidence. But of course, when she's telling the story about burying the the, the children, of course, you, you see in your head the, the, all this drama happening off screen. So so he's able to basically tell stories through objects, and I think that's very much the case with the the, the school at the beginning because you have all this exposition which Kat mentions. Uh and, and then you see this kind of cabinet of curiosities with all these objects inside. But of course the context, the all that exposition influences and changes the way you think about those objects. So all of these objects have great symbolic significance and it's not it's not that they're not kind of like symbols for something abstract, uh they're quite concrete in what they symbolize. If you see like in in the Rosalie short, if you see a bundle i mean it's it 's obviously the children's side it's it 's like a symbol in a in a much more kind of fundamental way, nothing fancy
1: we're talking a little bit about the religious symbolism and just that everything is an ascension. We have so many things that are up high in this, and i don 't know if that 's because of what happened in 1887 and that we have to take to the heights, but just that even when we're introduced to, uh, Grozo and the other, uh, criminal that he's got to fight, that there's this ascension, uh, up this elevator and everything seems to be taking place upstairs or in elevators or up elevators. And even when it comes to the area where they have to fight at, there's also a stairway there so that we've got goto above everybody else so that he and Glossia have to look down at the rest of it. And it seems like all the nobles are up there and all the riffraff is down on the floor. And we we're talking about the humor. I mean, the whole thing of, the fight that they have, it is—it looks like something that Charlie Chaplin would do. You know, the very large man who, of course, can kick Charlie Chaplin's ass, but we get some uh, good uh, bops at the head going on with this. I'm not sure what the rules of this game are, as far as why one person's head is covered and the other one's given a stick, but it works out for me watching it. Well, my interpretation was the the
0: guy because he killed. He, he gets a bag over his head, but because, because Grozer only st- stole a pair of binoculars, he gets a stick. Uh, and of course it may be, I, I don't know, I'm just guessing here, but it's, uh, leveling out the odds just to make it more entertaining. Cause I guess it's more about entertainment than, than law and order, which I guess is another way in which the film resonates with the, the climate we're in right now, particularly in the States, you know, never mind justice. Is it entertaining or not? You know, yeah. where the, were the ratings good?
4: Did you know I was number one on Facebook? And I just found out I'm number one on Facebook. I thought that was very nice.
0: For a long time, when asked, okay, what are your influences, it was very clear that Borovchik was not somebody, he was not a, cine, a cinephile. You know, he wasn't like, uh, yeah, when he got his camera, he wasn't making homages to, to Hitchcock or something like that. He, he he was interested in the the camera itself, so he usually... When he got asked who were your favorite filmmakers, I mean, he would say uh, um, uh, Chaplin, uh, Keaton, Eisenstein, uh, Vittorio De Sica, and uh, Melieu and uh, Emil Cole, and Reno. And for a long time, I thought, well, these are kind of, almost kind of get-out-of-jail type answers. I mean, who doesn't like Chaplin? Who doesn't like Keaton? But when you think about it, all of these filmmakers, with the exception of Eisenstein, and, and And definitely de Sica, these are all silent filmmakers. I mean Eisenstein, of course is half and half, but these are all silent filmmakers, and I think it's a really important way of looking at his films whereby and I don't want to sound like Peter Greenaway, who was in incidentally of that generation of people who were very influenced by Barofchik shorts in particular. but the basic idea which Greenaway goes on and on about you you can you can see very much in. Barovczyk's work, it's just that Greenaway articulates it better, whereas I think Barovczyk puts it into practice much more effectively. And that is the feeling that, in many ways, something in cinema died with the introduction of sound in 1927. You know, as soon as we came to a, a technological point whereby we could just kind of film theatre, that whole visual language, uh, which encompassed pantomime, it, it encompassed music, all of that was lost. Chaplin and Keaton uh, are the kind of the, the, the double pinnacle of that period in many ways. I think you have this 40 years later, so in 1967, 1968, you have three films which I think are equally significant. They're, they're completely different in many ways, but you have 2001 A Space Odyssey, The Color of Pomegranates, and you have Goto uh, Island of Love. And you have three filmmakers effectively making silent films. And what they're doing is what Eisenstein said we should do with Alexandrov and Podovkin with his statement on sound in 1928. He said, look, we have to be careful not to film theater. What we have to do is think of an association between the soundtrack and the image with the same innovation and imagination as we have with montage films of the 1920s. So you have people like uh, Kubrick making 2001, which has even got title cards when you think about it. There's hardly any dialogue, but music dictates much of the film or serves as a counterpoint. You're having a similar thing with Parajanov with The Color of Pomegranates, that simplification, that return to pantomime, doing away with uh, narrative in a conventional sense. And you have the same with Goto, the idea of let's let's go back to the silent era but give it a modern twist. Let's go back to the simplicity of of communicating a world an atmosphere of feeling but let's not be lazy let's not put this in dialogue or explain it let's let's show it and uh, and i think it it really you end up with this like, this acting which is is not it's not it's not realistic it's not like kind of like stylized pantomime but it's very very expressive and 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 you have that i think it's very clear in the scene when when goto and glossier go to the beach and they're, they're playing peekaboo. I mean, it's ridiculous, but it really does underline the the tone and feeling which Bruchic is after.
3: It's weird you're saying this actually, because I just wrote an essay on that. Most important thing is to love about this very thing with Shawarsky as well. And I'm not saying that that stylistically or tonally they made the same films. But I wrote about how in silent film, body language and expression and what we'd see is melodramatic overacting now, everything is exaggerated, was pretty much it, the entire language of cinema. And when sound comes along, it becomes this intellectual property. People start to think, we can raise the bar and we can put cinema on a par with theatre which was always considered the more serious form, of, the more intellectual, the more bourgeois form of entertainment. And when that comes along, things that are strictly physical or or tactile or, or purely visual, they somehow become lesser in that because they don't have this. So with Zyrowski, it's like the incredibly over-the-top melodrama, the expressive acting, The fact that things aren't told in words or logical words. They're told in screams and in crying and just this very, very over the top way that somehow when we get that sound shift becomes something that is considered lowbrow or, you know, we have to be very intellectual now. It's all about the script. It's all about the dialogue. It's all about this narrative meaning. Um, and I love some of the early sound films. I absolutely love screwball comedies, for example. I really love pre-code films. So I love the use of language in film. But I think the fact that language and clever language and clever dialogue, we lost so much because of that. You know, the expressive, it suddenly gets seen as, as being too expressive or too exaggerated or too strange becomes seen as a bad thing. And it all has to be explained. We lose that very instinctive visual thing that maybe it's not realistic, but we can respond to that in a way. Cause it's very emotion based. And, and so looking at a film like Go To also very emotion based. There's so many emotions in the film that like you said, there's sadness. There's this sense of. Uh, romance but this very very doomed romance that's very sad there's a lot of physical comedy and so you could watch that film without absolutely any dialogue no subtitles or anything and still understand it on some level I think which you couldn't do with a film that was people sat in a room talking about their lives (laughs) you just couldn't do that
0: one of the advantages I had, and it was an advantage uh like twenty twenty five years ago was seeing films like Shuevsky's films or yemen's films because um yeah because I didn't know i mean they weren't subtitled you know I didn't know polish or Russian. so of course you your you, you, your your appreciation of those films is purely to use your word like you know sensual it's you're looking at bodies in space you're looking at you're listening to the um the musicality of the voices, the intonation. So, of course, you're making inferences constantly about what's going, what the hell's going on in the scene based on whether people are screaming it or not or or, or whether, they, you know, they've got their clothes on or they've ripped them off or something like this. And I think that, that that was really helpful in terms of appreciating both filmmakers, and I think that conversely, I think a lot of the reasons why particularly Zdrowowski was very unpopular until relatively recently in Poland. It's because people. Oh, that dialogue's terrible. Oh my yeah. god. Yeah, it's
3: something, and, 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 isn't it? And then you're listening to
0: the film. You're listening to the film rather than looking at it. Yeah. And I think that that really and paradoxically, the the, the physicality of both. And I think that they uh, they have many similar things in terms of the context in which they work, the way that they worked on the fringes or across genre, but they were very different. People and, 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 characters, Shuevsky and Barovczyk, but the one thing, which I think that the most important thing is they really have a sense of, of, of kind of physical embodiment. Uh, the fact that it, it, intellectually, I think in, in, in the, in the West, uh, if, if you are going to intellectualize this, you, you talk about, um, language, uh, as a system as opposed to the spoken word. And I think the combination of, various cultural and theater traditions and not just poland but the east when you combine that with a lot of ideas in the soviet union in the 20s the idea of emphasis constantly on the spoken word so so the idea of gesture you know how you say i mean the reason there was so much kind of emphasis on this is because talking about language is a social phenomenon you know something which it, 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 you're going to be advising people, how do they give speeches? How do they motivate workers? You know, why does this person, uh, have this effect? Or, you know, who, who what's, what's, what, why could you end up with a situation with someone who's a great speaker reading the same text or someone who's a bad speaker reading the same text? And the good speaker makes a huge impression, but the bad speaker who, who said exactly the same content, the same words says it very weakly and unconvincingly. So I think that there's this, this whole emphasis constantly on the, the embodiment of the story. How do you visualize it? How do you physicalize it? And, uh, and then, you know, the, how those bodies actually can relate to the story itself. Are they physically interesting and not just beautiful? Are, are, are they aging in a particularly interesting way? I mean, there's some quite gnarly and freakish looking people in Goethe, and uh, And it's all the better for it.
1: You talked about how you could watch Goto without any sort of sound or dialogue. And so much of this movie is just about looks, and I think it was very telling that Grozo was uh, a thief because he stole binoculars, and that we have these scenes in these towers, especially uh, Glossia and Gono. Yeah, that's a thing. All the G's are a thing. Um, (laughs) Where they are in this tower, and it seems like each window they look out of is completely different. One seems to show them the ocean, one shows them the mountains, one shows them the forest, and it just depends on which way they look will show them these completely different scenes which is absolutely unrealistic but i love that that's the way that this movie works and that it is the moment when goto later on in the film gives uh grosso the um binoculars again that that is kind of leads to his empowerment when he actually ends up murdering Goto and tries to take over the whole shebang and and make uh, Glossia his his wife. Now it's interesting in terms of the the way in
0: which those three objects, those three roles, and the way that the the governor gives him the job of the, the looking after the sh- cleaning the shoes, looking after the dogs, and, and, and as as a fly. Uh, kind of how all of those kind of, uh, objects and, 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 those, those jobs, uh, play a role in the kind of the, the storytelling process. And I think also this way of, of cutting at these 90 degree angles, it, it allows him to very easily to create this just geography of the island. Uh, it's not, there's no continuity problems because if you, if you're only, if you're restricting yourself to this kind of, uh, flat on look, uh, and then you, and then you're progressing. You're cutting to an adjacent shot. You, you, you can actually create this without painting yourself into a corner, editorially. And, and the place can have as many beaches and as quarries as it wants. It's, got, it's kind of like chess in a way.
3: The position of the, the binoculars and this thing that you, the powerful man has possession of the b- binoculars is really fascinating as well, because he can see everything. And it's like the binoculars are forbidden. I like that scene just before he kills him where he's like, you know, you can look through the binoculars and, he, and, he, and he's acting like it's a trick. Like somehow binoculars are this forbidden thing that, you know, only certain people are privileged to. And I, I just really love those little details that tell us so much about the power structure on Goto. And, and he was privileged to do what, like Mike said, the, the level people are up on high as well and people are low, lower down. The way he uses that physical space just to tell us about how the society is ordered. But the binoculars thing really fascinates me because. You know, it's like, are they the only binoculars on the island? Like, why are they so, you know, why, why, why are they so dangerous? Why are they so important? And it's incredible. But then, like you said, he then uses that to show us parts of the island as well. So everything has a function. It goes back to what we were saying right at the beginning about it being art, but not this kind of intellectual detached art everything is very practical everything is, is pure art on one level but it's also very practical everything has a very very down to earth practical meaning which I love because often when you see some filmmakers who are going for the big intellectual statement they will put objects in as motifs which are fucking pointless it's, it's just smoke and mirrors it's just absolutely pointless mm-hmm. But in Goto, everything actually has a very practical meaning of of being there. And so, like Daniel said, on any level, you can understand that. You can understand the binoculars are important, you know, and they have this particular meaning. And I just absolutely love that part about it because it feels very grounded in that way, very earthy, very down to earth.
0: Well, I think that, that really is Barofsky's legacy in many ways, because I know it gets the headlines—the talented guy who ended up making soft porn, so to speak. But I think the, the the actual, the real legacy is that he he gave a generation of people, particularly in England and also France, uh, of artists the the possibility of saying, "Look, you can use film uh, in a in a narrative fashion." and certainly in the UK I mean Goto was the the key film in that respect in terms of you had uh, Raymond Dergner who wrote an excellent very long article for film comment in 1976 called Borovchik and the Cartoon uh, Renaissance which we included in the Camera Obscura book and uh At the time, Ray was teaching, he was a tutor at both St. Martin's College of Art and the Royal College of Art. So, of course, he was screening this as part of showing films to students of painting, students of photography, so not necessarily film students. And you had uh, the Quay Brothers at the Royal College of Art. You had Craigie Horsfield, the photographer I mentioned. You had a photographer called John Goto, who liked the film so much he changed his name. And you had Andrzej Klimowski, uh, who um, became and, and, and is a fantastic poster designer. Who you know, I commissioned him to do posters for not only Story of Sim, but also Hard to Be a Garden, Crystal of My Car. So all of those students were kind of exposed to Goto uh, and, and Raymond Durgnat's and particularly framing of it. And it's sort of, it, what Barocik was really showing is that, yeah, you, you can actually use film as a medium for other words. So if you, if you're a painter, you can make those paintings move. If you're a photographer. Well, you know, film is made up of 24 frames a second, but what is the relationship between those frames? If you're a sculptor, I mean, can you give a story to a sculptor? You know, this is, this is, uh, conceptual art and it's very, kind of rudimentary form there's a surrealist novel called Locus Solus by uh, Raymond Roussel and, and, and the basic plot is a, someone going to a country estate where they're kind of given a, a tour of all these increasingly surrealistic and bizarre contraptions, but with an explanation as to their workings. So in fact, the, the, this is like installation work. This is conceptual art. But it's done in an entertaining, bizarre fashion. And you could draw a parallel between that's kind of what Borowczyk's doing with Goto in the way that you're being given a guided tour to this kind of island, which is a bit like, I don't know, North Korea. It could be a bit like uh, Austria in the 19th century. It could be a, all of these things. But you're given a tour and you're given all these objects have a story. These fly catchers are there because of this plague of flies this bizarre guillotine type execution device uh, it says something about the the penal system in, 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 in on this island uh, and also the fact that the way that the coffins are kind of shot down as if it's at the sea you know all of this is kind of evoked and so this possibility of giving artists, uh, people not necessarily working in film, but working in other mediums, a way of telling stories using their particular area. I think that's something which, you know, is, Goto is really important in that respect.
1: Yeah, I don't know what it was about this time, but as I was watching this, I kept thinking of A uh, Hundred Years of Solitude by, uh, who's that, Marquez, and just how that. Isolation creates this whole different society, and that was coming out in 1967. So it's like something about, something in the air was just like, okay, let's talk about these isolated communities and how things can go wrong with them. And, um, you know, you're talking about it could be this country, it could be that country, but it's like those, um, those things are were being explored and and I do have to apologize, I said at the beginning you know this is Polish month, and Daniel was uh gracious enough to point out that Borovczek may be a Polish filmmaker, but this is a French film, and that he had been in France since what nineteen fifty eight so this isn't technically a Polish film, so we'll maybe we'll lump it in with the nineteen sixty nine series if if that counts.
0: This is, I think, when uh, film critics and film historians should not be too um, anal, frankly, because you're having, here is a film which is conceived in Poland by a Pole who has endured the Polish experience, and yet he makes the film in France. The film is then banned in Poland and in Franco-Spain, which, of course, um well, it was, you know, the whole situation in Poland is they, they, they didn't ban film, they bought the film and didn't distribute it. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> very but, passive but, aggressive.
3: Exactly. Way of doing exactly. It. They did this with
0: Blanche as well. <laughs> and, uh, so, so you have, how do you deal with these filmmakers? And I think that certainly something I noticed in the nineties, you had these people, primarily Borowczyk and Zaworski, who were basically too Polish for French film histories, and two French for Polish film histories. And that isn't helped by people like uh, Zanussi, the Polish filmmaker, by saying, well, Borowczyk, they were really French. They were really French. So you have all these questions here about what is the nationality of the film? Is the nationality important? Is it the country in which it's made? Is it the credit? Is it the director? Is it important? I mean, I've always thought of Borowczyk and Zawarowski as Polish émigrés they are, they're people who, who lived and worked abroad. I mean, it's like Joseph Conrad or, you know, all of these people. The, the film Goto is shot partly in the ruins of Marie Curie's laboratory on the outskirts of France. And of course, Marie Curie's Polish, uh, but she made these discoveries in France. And like Chopin, a lot of people think that Chopin and Marie Curie are French. How important is this national thing? And And, and if we ascribe importance to it, it, it kind of takes us down a road whereby we look at Goto as a political allegory. Uh, whereas on the other hand, a lot of other people were seeing it uh, like Angela Carter was seeing it as a fairy tale, which of course ties in with magic realism. Uh, Zdowski, uh he wrote a very interesting article in Positive magazine in the 1980s. And he said something which I think applies both to his cinema, but also Borovnik. He said that, um, uh, the with Fellini, uh, Fellini opened a chapter of film history whereby, uh, he, he found the the fantastic and the miraculous in everyday life, which of course is the, the same thesis of magic realism. But he then said that, well, he thought the next chapter in film history is making the absurd and the strange and, and fantastic realistic. And, and of course, that is a very good way of looking at possession. I mean, you, you, you have a, a monster in your bed, and you just treat it as a as a soap opera. And you know, it's 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 no it's no longer it's no longer a, a thing in a, a Spielberg movie. It's it's something you have to deal with during your divorce. And a similar thing with 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 Borowczyk and the idea that you, you talked about the strange instruments at the beginning. Yes, it's bizarre, it's off center, it's off kilter, but you kind of get it, what what you get from that. It's something a bit like a cello. Uh, and you have in the film, you have all of these strange, slightly off-putting, bizarre things. But at the same time, you kind of get this is an execution. This is a, a uh, this is mourning. Uh, this is a school. This is a sort of weird communist brothel. So you have this kind of s- what seems to be surrealistic and very kind of uh, bizarre and strange. But at the same time, no matter how strange it is, it's also a very familiar
3: film. It's interesting you bring up Angela Carter, actually, because um, I'm working on one of my many book projects on uh, a book of erotic stories, and Mike's read one of them, that are inspired by, not based on, both the work of Angela Carter and Borovchek called The Chamber of Beasts, because I see so many connections between Boro and Carter, especially their obsession with animals, uh, and you uh, with the flies in this, but the obsession of animals what, to do with sexuality. So it's probably a very niche erotic book, but it's the only one I can write. So there is definitely this sense of magical realism in Goto, but in a lot of Barofchev's films, and you can see how Carter was obviously influenced by that. She was obviously influenced by Czech cinema as well, and. I grew up reading Carter and came to the films later on. So it's amazing how many connections I then find and how, look at things and think she was, she'd obviously seen this. She was obviously inspired by that. Um, and Neil Jordan as well, who did Carter's, one of the only film adaptations of Andrew Carter's work, Company of Wolves. One of his favourite films, and I found this, like, 90s interview with him. I think it might have been in film comment. comment. He talks about some of his guilty pleasures. I fucking hate that phrase. But one of his favourite films was Blanche, and it just makes so much sense when you watch something like The Company of Wolves, how much influence filmmakers like Barovchek and even things like the the um Saragossa Manuscript... You know, these people—they weren't taking their gothic horror from something really obvious. They were going to these Eastern European, more surreal, and it's just like this pinnacle there, and all the lights come on, and you're just like, "Wow!" Like it's all fucking connected.
0: (laughs) In the case of Angela Carter, I mean, she she wrote, uh, and and it's it's well known that she, she regularly went to what was then the national film theater yeah. and so she 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 was a a, a voracious uh, cinephile and I, I know that when they did the film adaptation of the magic toy shop she made the director look at valerina week of wonders and i know that the the reference for the structure of the company of Wolves adaptation was the saragossa manuscript yeah. and it doesn't work as well in the, in the way that the Saragossa manuscript works, which is amazing. Um, uh, but, but, but the idea of actually having stories within stories within stories yeah. clearly comes from that. And I think that, um, yeah, I don't, I, there's no question that the, the beast obviously has a, a strong parallel with many of the ideas and both, well, particularly the film, the company of wolves and Neil Jordan. I think he's guilty pleasure. If I'm not mistaken, I think it was Lamarge and, uh, Nothing really guilty, nothing really guilty about Blanche. I
3: found another one where he talked about Blanche as well, so he's obviously a big,
0: well, I'm sure. He he certainly is, and I think that uh, it's uh, in the case of uh, when you look at that, what he was doing in the Company of Wolves, and I think that, yeah, it's where were those references, uh, um, inspirations, and I think it's uh, also the fact that Company of Wolves was one of the first Productions of of Palace Pictures, which of course grew out of the Scala Cinema, and of course Baraček's films were a, a kind of a mainstay of the Scala programming because they were perfect, uh, functioning both as as kind of art films and also um, yeah exploitation films because that's how Baraček films were distributed in the UK. The later ones they were distributed by uh, a distributor called New Realm, which also distributed Possession. But they were not, um, they made their money, I think, distributing Emmanuel, but they, they were not art film distributors.
3: Yeah, it's really fascinating. When you read something like Carter's uh, The Bloody Chamber, you can see so much of Baroque in the, this idea of women transcending and becoming beasts and things like that. There's a definite, and when I finally finish this book, I want to do like an introductory essay exploring all this this fascination with animals and and Carter was so obsessed with objects as well
0: when when did she write the sadian woman when when did she write that one
3: 78 i think
0: yeah cuz she she that was that was after she came back or during the time she was in japan was that right yeah so but you have but it is interesting when you actually have and i think this is in this particular climate with a lot of the discussions happening about Uh, sexuality in films about how these films are made and I think if you contrast the debate which is taking place at the moment with the debate that was taking place let's say immediately after 1968 which of course is the year Goto was produced you have uh, a slightly more nuanced feminist who are kind of quoting Simone de Beauvoir and you had Angela Carter saying well look okay uh, whatever you say about Bessard, at least he recognized women as something other than baby making machines. Yeah. And, uh, so sex, you know, sexuality is something to be embraced. And I, uh, and I think that you had, uh, Pauline Rayage, uh, the, 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 author of the story of O, uh, you have, you're having, uh, this is treated as, as kind of like great literature in France. And you're having Graham green saying that this is literature, uh, so there was this kind of plurality uh, of different feminisms and different approaches to 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 sexuality and uh, and, and and of course i think a film like uh, goto and particularly blanche it, it, it is interesting in the way that basically in blanche it, literally the film is about a bunch of men kind of uh, shifting around a kind of a, a, a kind of a, a hopeless object i mean blanche has no possibility in the social structure she can't do anything she's just a perpetual victim but her beauty and uh, her awakens this inherently aggressive sexuality in all the men yeah. around her and brings about this disaster so she's like a catalyst for this disaster but at the same time it's not blaming her for it it's just that she's the her beauty, her, everything is the, the flame which starts this fire. And it's exactly the same in Goto, in the idea that, that you realize that Goto, I mean, at the, the end of the day, the, the story is about a thieving little shit who understands the system in which he lives, and he proceeds to manipulate that system to try and get what he wants, and he doesn't get it. So you could say, on the one hand, this is this is a film made by a poll in france in 1968 so of course the polls saw that this this bastard's making fun of what it's like to live in communist poland because Pol- communist poland as as is contemporary poland it's full of corruption and, and and kind of cronyism and incompetence and uh so you could actually look at the film as almost like a, a satire on this kind of uh atrophying uh, they even called the 1960s in Poland the destabilization period uh, of, under Gomoka, So you could look at the film as some sort of comment on this kind of stasis where the utopian vision is ground to a halt and we're just kind of locked into this repeating Sisyphus-like cycle where nothing actually happens. Uh, you know, it's a bit like today. Will, will, this, will this kind of um, lockdown situation which we're all in, will it ever end? and all the days blur into one. So you could look at the film in a political way uh, in Poland, but at the same time, it's not limited to that. It's so much more, and I think the idea of the film as a sort of fairy tale structure, that's what excited Angela Carter.
1: Yeah. Uh,
0: Marina Warner writes about its uh, go in the Beast, of the, Bl- uh, the Beast of the Blonde, along with Blanche. So you're having the, these films which, which mean something for different people, And of course, the very people who kind of celebrated these type of films as as, uh, fairy tales about uh, what it's like to be a woman in this situation, I mean, drama. there is is that element to those films, and I think that's what was interesting to Angela Carter. But of course, a few years later, when feminism, uh, a more aggressive uh, kind adopted by uh, somebody like Andrea Dworkin, which has no kind of room at all for the idea of any form of pornography that whatever is deemed pornography is inherently bad and destructive. So and then then of course now we're back in a situation of this kind of puritanical view in which basically the feminism associated with Angela Carter and and de Beauvoir and all these people is is considered old and wrong.
3: Yeah, see that is why I respond to Borovchak's films so much and I know Certain quarters have called him misogynist or they've misread the films. But the one thing that I initially responded to in his films was this very Carter-esque sexuality, which she, she was obviously influenced by these things that we've been talking about. But this idea that um he would often expose the systems that oppress women. He would expose double standards. He tended to view women's sexuality as this very pure thing that was contained by these corrupt male oppressive or class-based structures Um, and then you get to something like Dr. Jekyll which is incredibly perverse and transgressive and that's all about the strength of female sexuality so i think we often seek to like oppress women's sexuality because it is so powerful and he and he understood that but it's like we shouldn't we either desexualize women completely or we make the sexualization of women this terrible crime instead of accepting you know the idea that women can be sexual and even in something like goto we see glossier is somebody who has her own sense of sexuality And her trajectory is she just wants to be involved in this love affair, she just wants to see a lover and obviously she's punished for that in some way by a jealous man, or potentially about to be punished by one jealous man and then another jealous man takes over. So away from the the political things, the reason I always uh, come back to this film is that fairy tale quality and and the very sort of female, feminine, sexual elements that are in all of his films. They're not... You get this idea, you know, Barofchek, the pornographer, you know, he's looking at women's bottoms and, you know, he's objectifying women, but I've never felt that from his films. I, what I see in his films are women that are trying to be free, and often they become free, and they're able to unleash that. You see it in um, Convent Walls, for example. So you get this, this sense of women trying to be free. And so it's not this commercial pornography that is just, you know, made to titillate a certain audience. It's not, it's not about that. It, I think it goes a lot deeper than that. And I think in that respect, he was very pro women. Um, I can see why Carter responded to that because if we read the Sardian woman, it's all about that, and she's got that famous quote about Sard, You know, whatever you want to say about him, he argued for women a woman's right to fuck and to fuck her, her way into history. And you know, so it, it's that same sense of that Cartian sort of feminism that I see in these films that um often gets blown aside. You know, by people talking about feminism and they automatically see, oh, this is a man and he's objectifying women and he's just doing it for his own obsessions. I think it goes a lot, lot deeper than that.
0: I think that the problem with those whole debates is the fact that, and it's, I think the problem with the word feminism is the same problem as the word pornography in the way that they mean nothing. I mean, you have to... Yeah explain what you mean by them so that you the person you, you you're having the conversation with is aware of the, the terms in which yeah. those. Uh, and, and i think that the, and the question which is always i think it's an important distinction is is sexuality as a subject as opposed to uh, a, a means to an end the end being
3: well it's part of life isn't it sexuality is part of life and barofchek has always framed it as just part of life part of existence, yeah Pasolini was the same Fellini and I'm broached on Fellini but I see similar things in Fellini as well between Brovchek and Fellini of course they uh, Fellini was really humorous as well and would often find humor in very dark absurd subject matter um yeah and somebody who saw things very visually like Fellini would always start and he started as an artist in comics as well, and would always start his films, ideas for his films with a picture that he'd draw a face on a piece of paper, and that's how, you know he saw things very visual. But there's definitely this connection there, this very central, this it's not, like you said, taking sexuality and making it a thing that can sell a picture. You know, this very, again, a very intellectual concept of what you should and shouldn't see. It's something that's more instinctual and it's something that is just part of life. And I think often when it comes to cinema, women aren't given the the space to have that sexual life unless it's part of some other agenda. Whereas in, in Fellini and Barovchek and even Zhuowski as well, sex it's just often part of everything else. It's just part of being a human.
0: Zhevsky's relationship with women is, 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 I think, much more complicated than yes. the <laughs> in a way that basically, um, I, I uh yeah, I think it's very interesting that it would appear that, um, uh, these films appeal massively to, uh, a female audience and that's great. Um, but, um, uh,
3: with Sharowski, the one thing that stands out to me, not going too much into a tangent, is with Sharowski, women are very emotional in his films, and, um, and they're often the most emotional. So the thing that I respond to in that is, you know, in our society, at least, You know, women can be a bit emotional, but it has to be this socially conventional type of emotional. You're not supposed to get hysterical or or shout or get angry or be aggressively sexual. So I'm not saying he meant to put those things in his films. That is just the one thing that I respond to. It seems so anti-convention to have a woman like Romy Schneider, for example, this huge icon of French cinema, kind of dribbling and grizzly and, you know, feels, I don't know, strangely powerful to me. It's like a big fuck you to the whole idea of how women should be presented in cinema, which is always very tempered. You know, I find it cathartic to see someone like Isabel Jani just going off a fucking nut in the subway, because I think a lot of women feel like that. We're just not, it's just not acceptable to like, express that I guess you know <laughs> we might feel like that but we can't do it so you know I'm not saying that's what he was he obviously had a very complicated relationship with women as well but as a byproduct of that that's just something I personally respond to. I agree exactly with what you're saying I think that uh, what I get
0: out of those films uh, is something very similar to what you're describing um, I'm just commenting on uh, in my limited dealings with certainly baravci and uh, i hope i a, a bit more with chohuaski i think that, that I, I really did not in any way um have any feeling or or of the people i've spoken to who work with bravgic um there was like wh- a misunderstanding let's say with the uh the the actress and story of sen but i would say most of the crew bragic worked with were were women and that wasn't out of any sort of Political gesture. It was just that I think those were the people he worked most effectively with. Yeah. I mean, as editors and as producers and as co scenerists and assistants and things like this. And I think this is very perplexing uh, for male film critics when they see a film which they're, they 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 feel they should condemn it because there's lots of objectifying shots of female sexuality. But the paradox is, is that yeah, the reality is is that yeah, I don't think he had a problem with women, anything but he saw no, things which Kat said. There,
3: there's a real warmth there for women. Something I see with Fleeney as well and John Roland as well and even someone like Jess Franco. And the last uh, three of those are people that that... You know, often get termed as misogynist just because they like to show women naked. Uh, Automatically that's misogynist and there can't be any other reason for it. It's solely there for a, a male spectator's, his pleasure. And, and I know it's like this thing, they're trying to be kind of PC about it and support women, but actually what they're doing is saying, uh, you know, no women can be sexual because it's only for a man. Well, no, it can be for the woman herself. It can be for other women as well. It's not just this one thing. And I think Borovchek understood that. And there's, like, you can tell him and Jurowski are making those comparisons, but they're obviously, Jurowski was obviously a lot more cynical. Whereas with Borovchek, I just see this very almost childish, gleeful joy in in a lot of his work. The same with Fellini.
0: I think the problem comes from the fact that, um, uh, well, I think the problem comes from the fact that, that identity politics have pretty much, well, they ruined film criticism, certainly uh, for this generation. Yes. And what, <laughs> what I mean by that is that you take an idea, like Laura Mulvey's idea of the female gaze, which, uh, as, as, uh, as a note, as, so, as an idea, it's fine. As an idea, it's fine. And as it's an been
3: idea, so
0: well, this is that we have to distinguish between the idea in itself and the applications of the idea. Now, the idea in itself, as it appeared, the journal and and the context, it's you may not agree with that point, but the point is, it 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 you have to re- agree. This is an interesting idea, and it serves a function. Um, the problem, I think, has happened when when the idea has been badly applied. Yeah and, and now now the term has kind of gone mainstream and you're having people using the term in a way which is what it sounds like as opposed to actually coming yeah. um, back to reading the paper. And you're ending you up into this really reductive and quite brainless i'm sorry to say and that transcends
3: gender it's like saying all audiences are completely passive and you're just sat there receiving messages from some male director and it's like no you're not passive when you're a film watching and making a film it's a collaboration so you're the messages you're taking away might not even be the messages that the director intended to put there it all depends and so yeah like you said it's become very reductive and I think Barofchek is one of those filmmakers I've seen those people do the live tweet along things on I don't go on Twitter very much for this exact reason you know uh, people sort of doing tweet alongs to the beast and that uh, especially when that box set come, oh, and some strange uh, uber feminist anti male gaze site Doing some sort of tweet alongs. They, they'd found some John Roland on Netflix. They were doing check, and the stuff they were reading from that, you know, it was from this very kind of aggressive, uh, annoyed tone of look at the French, uh, man filming these naked women. And I, and I just thought, no, I just, I'm really sad that you didn't get the same thing <laughs> that I did from it.
0: It gets ridiculous. I mean, there was a, the, the situation with, I mean, without getting further distracted into this, I mean, it was ridiculous. The, the, the Cesar ceremony with Polanski and then the whole, and there was like, there was something I, I went onto Facebook for about, I don't know, a day and then went back <laughs> off again. But when I was on there, it was basically, uh, people attacking Claire Denis for not attacking Polanski. And then, and then basically, so you think, hang on. So, you know, when, when it comes to, I would say, I don't know, a role model of what a filmmaker should be, let alone a a woman filmmaker, but a filmmaker. It's Claire Denis, and here you are attacking this person for not doing what you want them to do or expect yeah. them to do. And then it was followed by these two things. Uh th- That's so fucking French, and then under that, it was like, well, this is an attitude adopted by women of a certain age. So you're thinking, hang on, so, right, we're trying to... <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to just gen- we're here, 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 but but racism is okay and ageism is fine. Don't you see the irony here? And then the, that's why I don't think I think it's just like it's like the the dying days of Al Qaeda. All these people will just end up in caves, just basically uh, slaying each other for not being pure enough in their kind of handling of the term the female gaze.
3: Oh, well, it's like internalized misogyny, which is another fucking term I hate because that's basically saying, unless you would agree with my stance on things, everything else that you think, uh, has been told to you. You've been brainwashed. No, actually, they're my fucking thoughts. <laughs> it's like. The
0: problem, I think, with, with, uh, with this idea in approaching a film like, say, Borowczyk or Ozhowski is that, uh, Say, for example, um, how do you, how does this way of looking at, you know, the, the, the male gaze effectively objectifying this, that, new? because R- was I mean, he, he said it explicitly, the, the women become almost like, you know, kind of, uh, avatars for his, and you look at a film like possession that his he really, <laughs> it, it's, it's, the, the Sam Neil character is definitely, not the, you know, if you're watching the film, it, it isn't like he's making the film saying, guys, look at the predicament this this guy's in. No, the interest and focus, the Mark, the Sam Neil character is a cipher that all the energy goes into the female characters.
3: Yeah, we talked about that on our episode, how... A lot of men in Swarovski's films are very passive and the women, by contrast, have all this rage. So it's interesting that he chooses women as his mouthpiece to express a lot of that. And I just find it fascinating.
0: The men in Barovczyk's films... and and You you take a film like Rosalie, which we've already talked about, the focus is on uh, Rosalie. She's talking... She's made pregnant by the master of the house, a guy abusing his position socially in the house. He gets her up the door, gets pregnant. She's got no economic or financial means. And so she buries them. And yet and yet she is in court uh, on charges of effectively child murder. So you're having a situation whereby a filmmaker, the way in which you present the story really dictates your particular political leanings and also your attitudes towards women and and it's the whole film is constructed around empathy I'm so and understanding of rosalie and it's in no way you know the the bastard in the story is uh is the guy who we, we we don't see on screen it's the photo and i think that you know you can extend that to to both um particularly goto and blanche in the way that um it's symbolism, but it's almost like a graphic shorthand, like the way he cuts in the opening titles between the castle and then Blanche's pet dove in a cage i mean it's we get it she she's trapped, you know, but you know it, it's a storytelling it's a very visual way of saying her predicament, but you realize this is a story about uh, a, a woman who just doesn't have any way out, and men are just going to fight around her, and the whole thing's just going to destroy and then she and she, 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 she commits suicide almost as a, you know, almost as self-sacrifice. And you're having this Christian Im- imagery all throughout the film. The idea that, you know, in order to stop this violence, she does this, which is just a horrific, very pessimistic and depressing conclusion. And it's the, the similar thing. It's, 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 uh, Glossier's sexuality. She doesn't initiate anything, but the very thing that she penetrates into the kind of the, the brain of Grozo starts into motion this whole violent rise to power, um, which involves these elaborate schemes and murder. Uh, she's not responsible for that. The, the fact that basically the film climaxes with this moment of. She gets chased to the top of this building and then basically looks at Grozo and you can see her imagining a life, you know, as as the kind of the governor's wife, another guy she doesn't have any feelings for and can't stand or or suicide. And then she just clearly chooses suicide. And you're thinking, well, is this a happy ending? You know, she's escaped, but at what cost? And then is she dead? Because she opens her eyes at the end. That's another thing we haven't talked about. But, yeah, it's, it's a very bizarre uh, and 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 yeah and you kind of think well no the the film is very much although the focus the narrative focus is on Grozo does brofchik actually like is he a hero is he an antihero what is he i mean cuz he's a i personally admire his cunning and his determination <laughs> but he's an absolute
3: slimy bastard he is really horrible i can't say i sympathize with him at all he he's a strange character because I don't even know if he is an anti-hero because I don't know, maybe it's just because of, of me. He's, he's like a villain, and to me it's Glossier's character that I respond to the most, even though she is almost on the peripheral, although she be, also becomes the catalyst. It's her character who he seems to be the purest and the most heroic like when she jumps off and she makes that choice, that's very, I find that very powerful. That she makes this choice, even though it's also sad, ultimately sad as well, because she is literally the only character that you can actually sympathise with. Everyone else is just so horribly corrupt and and you know jostling in this power struggle. To get to the top of this chain, where you get to own a pair of binoculars, it's it's so like.
0: <laughs> mean, it is almost approaching black Emma and The idea that she 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 literally would rather be dead than than sitting on a chair opposite you know, it's like I the ultimate rebuff, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's like you know, it's it's like yeah, it's the ultimate rebuff. You know, I'd literally, I, I'm taking myself out. This <laughs> thought in your head, you know, even that's going to stop, you know. And uh, yeah, it's. Um, but well, yeah the focus she is the focal point of the uh, she's the she's the, the 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 thing which initiates the story she's the the motor uh, and it's not necessarily you know it's just the effect she has on these people the fact that that uh, the emperor is not a bad guy he's he's just i mean yes he's a dictator but he's kind of slightly sentimental and you know a bit maudlin and the way he's playing these children's games with her on the beach and, and she mothers him uh although she doesn't love him and she loves gono and uh you know it's i think it's very interesting the characterization of the governor uh because yeah he, he he's not the monster and i think the reason he tones down the governor is really you know the real the real monster is Grozo.
1: Well it helps too that Pierre Brasseur is playing the governor and even when he is monstrous like he is in Eyes Without a Face, you still sympathize with him. So I think having a different person in that role or if he had played it heavier would have really turned us off from him. But he's there and he doesn't come off, yeah, as, as completely evil and yeah, meanwhile Grozo is just always conniving, always looking for the angle. And when he actually sets up those dogs to take a fall and has them executed, it's just like, you can't get much worse in my book.
0: I know that he wanted Guy Trejan, who who plays, actually he cast in the Beast as the father. Uh, That's who he originally wanted for the the, the role of the governor. And I know that there was uh, a lot of fighting going on between Barovczyk and Pierre Brasser. Brasso was drinking quite a lot at this stage, and there were assistants whose job it was was
1: just to make sure he didn't drink too much. Yeah, I think he died, what, three years later? I think it was 72? Exactly.
0: And But but the, uh, but the I, I don't know about you, Kat, but I've always, because I encountered these films quite close together, I've always associated Eyes Without a Face with Goto. And in fact, I think you can look at a number of parallels between Franju and and and, and in the way, particularly the La Tete contre l'amour, the, the film he made with Jean-Pierre Mocky, and you have all those little contraptions. You've got the, the scene at the end when when um, uh, she lets out all the, the, the dogs which are in those cages and you know all the animals she lets out of the laboratory at the very end of the film and walks off and you have the animals, the dogs in particular running out across the beach and um,
3: they're both sort of fairy tales as well, anyway, and Blanche as well, the, the, the doves in Eyes Without a Face, and then the doves, the symbolism of the doves in, in Blanche, and this idea of women being trapped, this sort of very fatalistic, doomed thing, these women being at the mercy, well, in Eyes Without a Face, it's the father, but, you know, being trapped and being stuck in these horrible kind of nightmares where things are just happening to them. There is definitely a, a like a parallel.
0: And of course, Franchu, like Barovczyk, had this. I mean, of course, he's one of the co-founders of the French Cinematheque. And uh, along with Henri Langlois, he, he's kind of responsible for saving a lot of this kind of very early silent cinema and of course, he remakes one of the serials as Judex. So you're actually having a filmmaker who's having this dialogue with this very kind of early cinema, but but finding a new way to make films in the mode of uh, like a serial or uh, like The Vampire or Judex in a in a modern way. And uh, and I think yeah, there, there is a, a parallel there. And of course, there are. Um, Lottie Eisner, uh, who, who was working at the, the German Jewish cinema critic who was working in Paris, uh, she, she was the, 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 the critic who was fighting that Goto got the Prix Georges Sadoul. And there's a letter she wrote personally to Borowczyk commenting on the banning of the film in Poland and, and comparing the situation in Poland and the world that Goto depicts. Is to what she experienced in Nazi Germany and Kristallnacht and things like this. So it is fascinating how you're having people, it's like a Rorschach ink print in the way that you're having half the audience perceiving the film as a, as a political allegory, sort of a, um, parable. And then you have this fairy tale aspect. And I think that's really what gives the film its, its longevity. Cause you have a film, it's like, I, I don't know, a Vida film. About politics. It's obviously politics as its subject and it is about politics. That's, that's the thing. Uh, whereas what I think Borowczyk was doing and in, in some ways Jawowski was doing as well as taking, turning, uh, turning, coming up with a fairy tale, which may have resonance with contemporary Polish politics or whatever is happening. And the devil is a good example in that respect. And I think it's true in Goto. It could be it could be a fairy tale, exciting. Angela Carter, Terry Gilliam, or Jean-Pierre Junet and, and and Mark Caro were huge fans of Goto, and they programmed it at uh, Le Tranche festival as part of their Car Blanche. You had uh, Patrice Leconte. I mean, it, it, he was the biggest fan of Barofsky, writing in Cahiers de Cinema articles on Cabal and and, and Goto, which are fantastic and very very. Uh, insightful and interesting and important articles about the significance of those films. So he was having this influence, but the film meant different things to different people.
3: I think that's the wonderful thing about it, though. I think it is that you can read so many different things into it, and people take away you know, the things that resonate with them. I think that goes back back to what we were saying about this idea with the physical... Removing language, it gives you that space to explore and to to take different things away from it because you haven't got this very uh kind of strict spoken narrative that tells you exactly how you're supposed to think and feel about something it uh, allows the audience to have that freedom uh, which is something you don't find in Hollywood film to make their own minds up and take what they want from it and I think. You know, in that respect, he was a very generous filmmaker because he offered the audiences so much. He wasn't dictating to them and saying, this is how you should feel about this film. Or this is exact, this is, I made this film as, I mean, I love Vincente Aranda, but he made The Blood-Spattered Bride, which is an, an allegory of, franco is spain and he would talk about it and say well this means this and this was you know and what i'm doing is this is a very political film and it's fascinating but it doesn't then give you the space to perhaps appreciate it as a fairy tale based on the because the emphasis is you know on spanish politics and it is on fascism so it doesn't give you that that room and when sam and me did the commentary for that one for mondo macabre this guy wrote a review saying What i didn't expect a spanish history and political lesson you know <laughs> listening to this why can't we just appreciate the boobs and it's like well you can
0: <laughs> i mean that's the difference another difference between zhwavsky and barowczyk and the way that zhwavsky would very happily give you a history lesson in the interview is a, is a, is a key for unlocking the the devil for example but on the other hand Brovchik not only went out of his way to 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 say what the films were not uh you know I mean he he was amused that they were both banned in Spain in Franco Spain and, and in, in communist Poland it's it's presented as a joke by him but he doesn't actually let he doesn't talk about politics explicitly in interviews it's not immediately clear what, where his politics lie and uh and it, it's 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 kind of interesting to to, to think where the the strength of the work is the fact that it doesn't have that interview in which the filmmaker says what it's about. uh, I love
3: that. I love evasive filmmakers and ones who are clearly just taking the piss. I mean, Herzog does it. These people come in with this very pretentious kind of, wow, is it that you're saying this? And they just kind of laugh and go, wow.
0: You know. well, it, it's also it's also about extending the shelf life of your film because uh if, if you have like goto and you think okay uh if you have a fairy tale uh, about a, a tenacious criminal that through persistence rises to be the ruler of his particular world well that that certainly has a bearing on I don't know, contemporary American politics or, or, or Russian politics. And, and, and you could say that you could look at Goto and of course it's a fantastic film, but at the end of the day, it's a film about a rigged election. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you <know>. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Barovchek himself described the film as a realist film. He didn't call it a surrealist film, just as it, it wasn't a case of just being perverse and say, I don't make erotic films. And you think, Oh yeah, right. Or this is a real—he's not being ironic. This is a realistic film. It's just that the—it's like a dream. All the bits are in slightly off-kilter arrangements and things like this. The themes it addresses are very realistic themes. Unrequited love, the stasis of experiencing, or in, in, a, in a social, a hermetic, closed environment, where there's no real feeling of change. You know, it's not a dystopia. It's not a utopia. It's just stasis. Uh, this is very much connected with the drama at the time. A lot of critics drew parallels with Borovchik's animations, uh, with uh, the playwright, Ionesco, and certainly Beckett. And, and I think that the kind of the look of something like um, Goto, it's interesting to look at how people were staging Waiting for Godot, and they were kind of giving people Charlie Chaplin-esque bowler hats and and costumes I mean as far as I remember that's not actually in the text it was an interpretation it's not a million miles away from that kind of a visual approach which Borovchik is this sort of sad melancholic echo of silent film comedies but drowned out in this kind of desolate timeless endless landscape recently I was watching being there the Hal Ashby film
3: I saw that recently as well
0: And I think there is an interesting parallel you could draw between Goto and being there in the way that they are both about people who, you know, the film is about the ascendance of social mobility. So in the case of being there, you've got in a gardener basically becoming the kingmaker for the White House. And you've got a a, a binoculars thief becoming the, the ruler of a totalitarian state in the case of Goto. Now, uh, Being there is based on the novel by Jerzy Krasinski, who was always getting into trouble because of plagiarism, and uh, and that became, you know, the the, the narrative and, and 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 everything else and uh, how he dealt with those accusations. And a lot of pol, there was a lot of Polish commentary when Being There came out about how it was very similar to a book which was very popular in Poland in the 1930s. Uh, the career of Nicodemus Jima uh, and there was uh, there's been a couple of films and a TV series of it, but it is about a, a, an opportunist a social climber who, who kind of makes this a sense and, and I, I, I've, I don't know for certain, but I do wonder if if that that book and that story which was very popular and it sort of entered Polish consciousness to describe a particular person. You know, this person's a Nicodemus Jima, uh, a, op- a greasy opportunist basically. And uh, maybe the thought, the concept of that was how could he translate this into his world? How could he make it applicable to the world of which he'd experienced? Because of course he, he went through the war in forced labor and then went into uh, art College, which was then mid through his studies taken over effectively by socialist realism, the kind of visual imposition of Stalinism. Could you translate a story about an opportunist into this kind of strange world which may or may not draw heavily on uh, the the kind of the Novohuta building sites and uh, the, maybe these experiences in the war or maybe something completely fantastic. So I've often wondered that could be a possible inspiration.
3: That's interesting. That is really interesting. Although Peter Sellers is like in being there isn't manipulative. Is he? He's just. He's more like the idiot. Uh, he he's
0: nice. I mean, he's much nicer than in the original the the, the story I'm talking. The the yeah, the, the, like Nicodemus, the Nicodemus who who's uh, who who's yeah who's yeah much more. But in, in, in being there, as you say, he, he's more of this kind of like a, a Eurodivy, like a holy fool, isn't he? Yeah. Interesting.
3: But it's, it's,
0: it's, it's interesting. I think these, these kind of like, uh, it's how do you, maybe what's interesting is how you draw on your, your roots and express them in your form. I mean, it was the case, uh, with, with Joseph Conrad and the way that, um, a, a lot of Polish commentators uh, on, uh, victory notice that the plot is very influenced by the Stefan Żeromski novel, which Borowczyk made story of sin on, on, you know, and bro- what, what Conrad brought to the English literature was this kind of vast knowledge of Polish literature, which was inflected through the French language. And so you end up with filmmakers like, like Borowczyk, who, who is working and flourishing in France, but they're, drawing, they're bringing with them an approach to graphics, which was kind of fostered in Poland, an approach to music which was fostered in Poland and they sort of blossom uh, with artists like Parmigiani, finding a producer like Anatole Doman, who says, well, maybe you should work with Mondiac, maybe you should work with uh, this person, that person maybe, you know, what about Alan René? You know, and we need to find a way of addressing cultural heritage but not being limited by it. Um, Barofczik himself got quite annoyed when people would say, "Oh, well, you're coming from the tradition of Bruno Schultz or or um, Witkacy and uh, Gombrowicz," and he would go, well, yeah, just because just I'm Polish and, and weird doesn't mean we all go to the same school."
3: <laughs> it's you know?
0: and 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 the, the, so the idea that well we have to look at these things more generally, and the fact that the the, the films which were exciting him in her interest were often German films, which he was seeing in Poland, because of course this is before communist takeover, and the, 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 he grew up in Western uh, in Poland. And you had German films and French films and you know Italian films and King Kong. So I'm the recording. idea that we, we, we the idea that we make films and and and, and, and our field of vision is limited to the country in which we live in is really naive because that's not how cinema worked. It was international the way that art is international. You can see an exhibition of a French painter in Germany. It's important to be, on the one hand, sensitive to cultural-specific possible influences like that particular novel, at the same time not be limited by them, because I think the the echoes and parallels between, you know, uh, the magic realist novels or or Fronju Cinema or Angela Carter's books, that's what's interesting, the way these things kind of, uh, uh, rather than doing like a dot-to-dot approach to who influenced who, it more like, um, you know, kind of parallels, contrasts, uh, differences, similarities. And, and I think that the constellation around Borovchik, writers like Angela Carter, graphic artists like Klimovsky, uh, animators like the Quay Brothers and filmmakers, even Peter Greenaway. It's a really interesting
1: constellation. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break. Play some messages from our sponsors and then a preview for next week's show. This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS.
4: You can make a difference. We asked the man on the street what he thought about the After Movie Diner website and podcast, but sadly, he had never heard of either and was on his way to the doctor's to have a mole removed. Or it could have been a badger; he wasn't sure. It felt bigger than a mole. Also, he wasn't sure how it got up there in the first place. Anyway, we asked all the famous people, like Michael Ironside, Fred the Hammer, Williamson, Ted Raimi, Barbara Crampton, Cynthia Rothrock, and so on, that they've interviewed over there on the After Movie Diner website and podcast, what they thought about the After Movie Diner website and podcast. But most of them said that if we quoted them, we would be hearing from their comical southern lawyers, complete with bow tie, meat gut, and brow mopping handker chief so instead we say who cares what anyone thinks of you after movie diner website and podcast you are awesome just the way you are so don't you go changing if you want to see for yourself go to aftermoviediner.com or find the after movie diner podcast on blog talk radio itunes stitcher and wherever podcasts are found the after movie diner doing it their own way since 2011
2: it's not easy having a good time and it's not cheap either Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
0: Między wszystkimi historiami jest jedna, której nie słyszałeś. Pełno w niej witry
2: i fantomów. Dlaczego mam uczucie, jak gdybym już tam kiedyś był? Chcę wiedzieć, czy to wszystko mogło się zdarzyć i tak i nie bo są rzeczy, które są za wielkie za wspaniałe porwania, gonitwy, zdrowy. ja sam nie mogę wyjść ze zdumy one tylko próbują próbują się zdarzyć czy znasz historię, której czas
0: już nie zmieni czy starczy ci cierpliwości aby jej wysłuchać
1: That's right. We'll be back next week to wrap up Polish Month with a look at Wojciech Has's Hourglass Sanatorium. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Kat and Daniel. So, Daniel, what has been keeping you busy, sir?
0: I've had the pleasure of working uh, with Criterion on two releases, The Cremator. Um, we re-edited a documentary where we, uh, Bill Storung, the German distributor, and I, we went with Uri Hertz to the locations of The Cremator. So it's been nice to revisit that. And also working a little bit on their forthcoming release of come and see and uh, and besides that, uh, a project of restoring films from the Caucasus in Central Asia, we did a the fixer film, the restoration company, with which I've worked on many films, including Shuevsky and Bovciik. We've been restoring the outtakes from the color of pomegranates and uh, presenting them just to contradict everything we said in the podcast now I can be a pretentious wanker yeah we made an art installation we made an art installation out of outtakes so that 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 was presented in Rotterdam Film Festival and in in Yerevan last year and now we're uh, making a a version which can travel and um, so uh, yeah that's what's been keeping me busy and uh, it's very difficult to talk about travel in this
1: particular moment isn't it (laughs) And, Kat, when you're not out there winning Rondo Awards, what are you up to?
3: Oh, do <laughs> I'm too important for this show now.
1: Yeah, this is the last appearance of Kat Ellinger on the projection booth. She's going to get a new chair, get some beige paint for her room.
3: Well, she announced this week. So I did a commentary for Shameless uh, Restoring Flavia the Heretic. Which is one of my favourite non-exploitation films. It's just really gritty, angry feminist thesis on on war and religion, and it's got Florinda Balkan in it. So I did that commentary last year, but it's only just they've only just finished the Restoration. So that's just been announced because I've been dying to talk about that. And I've also done a couple of things for Eureka for their Masters of Cinema series. Uh, for crisscross, Cross, I did a written essay on Co Mac and the Noir, and then a video essay for The Foreign Affair, Billy Wilder's Foreign Affair, talking about Marlena Dietrich, Billy Wilder, and uh, Billy, their time in Berlin, bef- obviously before they both went to Hollywood, and all the decadent elements in, in that. So that was kind of fun as well. But now I have to give all that up now. I'm a, like a kind of queen... Monster Kid Queen.
1: We are among royalty.
3: And and obviously, my 110,000 book projects that of <laughs> on the go. <laughs> Determined to finish at least one in lockdown because I just don't get all these people are suddenly like, oh, I'm so creative. I'm writing all these novels. And all I've been able to do is sit there staring at the wall or, or watching 70s romantic comedies like that's it (laughs) and eating a lot of cheesecake when i can get shopping deliveries that that was one of the nice things about um uh well maybe not
0: nice is the right word but the it was a relief because um there was this uh, literally hundreds of films which barowczyk talked about making and um uh, when he deposited uh, a big part of his archive uh, in the Cinematheque before he died. But um, when he, when, when he did die, I mean, we, we, we kind of organized Dominic Duviget, who was the, the, the secretan who, who um, worked on the script of the adapting it into French of Goto. Uh, we both put these papers into order before putting them into the Cinematheque and, it turned out that most of these projects were just basically like a post-it note with a title, like Adam Bovary. <laughs> <laughs> and and like, on. maybe like one page. And I thought, you know, that that makes me feel, you know, m- m- maybe not more productive, but not as underproductive compared to Proofchek, because basically it just seemed, how did he find the time to do all of this? And there was a lot of material. It was a crazy amount of stuff for films which were not made. But at the same time, yeah, a lot of those were just titles.
3: (laughs) Well, the whole idea of Borovchak doing Bovary, he would have just been the perfect person. I read about that, or I don't know if you mentioned it, but I I don't know what happened with the project, but Neil Snowden uh, from PS Publishing at one point was floating a, a book project, but where writers would write about a fictional film, so something that was conceived but never got into script development. And I think the project's still going on down the line, but that was what I picked because I just thought that would be the one film that I felt like, and the idea was you'd write about it, you know, imagining what the film could have been like. A bit like Fellini's Flash Gordon as well. Well, thank you
1: so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, ProjectionBoothPodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.